for the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Kate Scott. Welcome to the update. On today's show, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that every meat-eating baseball fan can agree that chowing down on a great dog on a warm day at the yard, those are the moments that stick with us. And few, if any, made buying a dog more memorable here in the Bay than longtime Giants and A's vendor Jimmy Graff, who died unexpectedly on Christmas Day. So with help from A's reporter Alex Coffey, we celebrate his life through stories from those who knew him best, the folks who never in a million years would have ever called him Jimmy Graff. To them, he was always Jimmy the Hot Dog Guy. It's Wednesday, January 15th. All right, Alex. Well, I'd love to know when you first heard about Jimmy Graff, or rather, I think we should be calling him from here on out, Jimmy the Hot Dog Guy. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be a more appropriate name. That seems to be the name that everyone knows him, <laughs> knows him by. So it actually kind of just like fell into my lap. I was you know, looking around Twitter one morning. It was when I was home in New York for the holidays, and I just kept seeing these posts circulating around Twitter mentioning Jimmy the Hot Dog Guy, and obviously... You know, I've only been on this beat for about a month, a uh, month and a half, and I'm still kind of learning about the organization and the fan base. I'm yeah. trying to learn as much as I can, and I'd never heard of this guy before, so I just started looking into it, and I kept reading all these incredible stories that just, they all seemed really personal. Like, it seemed like everyone had an anecdote about him, mm-hmm. and that struck me as kind of unusual in our day and age. You know, I think there's a lot of temptation in any industry to kind of just do your job, do what's on your job description, whatever is within your job description, and just go home. And this guy felt like the complete opposite of that. So, yeah, I just kind of started digging and reached out to Hal, reached out to some of the people who were sharing their stories on Twitter, and kind of as I pulled one string, it led to another. And, you know, all of a sudden, this larger story kind of started unraveling pretty quickly. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version, but that's how I found it. That's that's so cool. I love that social media was what drew your attention to it. And we will definitely get into Hal the Hot Dog Guy in just a bit. But first, I want to go back to the beginning. How did Jimmy's vending career get started here in the Bay? Yeah, so he's got a pretty incredible story. From what I've heard from his friends and coworkers, he started vending at 10 years old. And this is before the A's arrived to the Bay Area. You know, his father was a lifelong vendor. He sold newspapers at Seals Stadium. And so it was kind of like a family industry. I mean, one of his dear friends told me that his siblings were vendors as well. His dad was a vendor for, like, the minor league teams before oh. the A's or Giants even got to... Like the Pacific Coast League? Yeah, exactly. So his, his dad used to, like, sell, like, newspapers in Seal Stadium. I think he probably worked like the, the Oakland Oaks in Emeryville. Uh, and so his dad was a lifelong vendor. And so then he started vending at a young age. So Jimmy was, I think he was 48. And he started mm-hmm. vending when he was 10 at uh, Berkeley football games. And uh, I think he started at the baseball games when he was like 13 or 14. And he sold everything for a long time. So it was really kind of a family affair. And he grew up in that culture. And he started vending himself around... 10 years old at Cal Berkeley Games. He was tagging along with his father, Bill. I mean, he'd been doing it ever since. So that's kind of how it began. It was kind of a product of being raised in the spending culture for lots of a better word. Yeah, I love that. I don't think that's 
something that a lot of folks may think of as a family business. You think of a lot of other things, <laughs> cars and real estate and construction, but I don't know about hot dog vending, so I love that. Uh, so let's skip ahead because for folks who haven't seen pictures of him, Alex, we have to paint the picture for them of, <laughs> of game day Jimmy, starting with the recognizable <laughs> outfit that he wore. If you could describe it for us. The first thing that pretty much everyone I've talked to has mentioned is his big grin, this kind of this grin that like lights up a ballpark, I guess, in this scenario, kind of like 2D, you know, he looks at everyone like he's known them for five years. He wore a red and white striped vest that was custom made from Clovier in San Francisco called Al's Attire. Al and Jimmy were actually from the same neighborhood, so Jimmy... You know, he always wanted to give business to the guy that he knew growing up and all that stuff. And I think he got some sort of hometown discount, too. So <laughs> so he got his um, his red and white vest, striped vest from, from Al's, and it had his name on it, Jimmy, in, in cursive. And he also wore shined dress shoes that were, like, impeccably shined. That was another thing that came up that people always kind of noticed was that he was doing all this work. He's lugging this, yeah. this big humor around with him and you know maybe on a hot day he still puts the effort in enough to shine his shoes to be wearing this uniform he always wanted to look presentable he had a really really high standard pretty much in everything that he did when it came to this job yeah so so let's get into more of that uh, because those outfits weren't the only thing that set jimmy and hal the hot dog guy who you mentioned earlier apart what did those two use to haul all their hot dogs around in this was a really awesome little bit that, of course, I had no idea about, but apparently Jimmy had some connection that he used to work at Candlestick Park, and this guy apparently had old hot dog steamers from Candlestick Park that were about 60 years old, and he got one for himself and one for Hal, and whenever anyone would question whether these steamers were actually from Candlestick or not, he would show them the serial number on the side of the box, um, <laughs> kind of as evidence that, <laughs> indeed, they were from Candlestick, uh-huh. and from the fans that I talked to, it was one of their favorite parts of what he did was that he's kind of like this relic of another era. You know, he's in a team that's, you know, we're implementing new technology and we're trying to appeal to a newer audience, mm-hmm. younger audience. You know, he really, really incorporated the historical, traditional aspect of baseball. And that was just one example, you know, lugging around these gamers that were 24 pounds, that weighed 24 pounds before he put anything in them. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> okay, so let's let's get inside the, the steamers then. <laughs> yeah, talk about, oh, my goodness. So he's lugging 30 or 40 pounds around in dress shoes. That's awesome. And other than the fact that they looked cool, what else was so special about these steamers? I heard something about the, the bottles of mustard that were inside of them. So pretty quickly, he expressed some opinions about the quality of the condiments served at the Coliseum, <laughs> his opinion being that they weren't up to snuff. So you know, he would talk to fans and kind of figure out what their favorite brands of mustard were, what their favorite brands of ketchup were, like kind of experimenting with different types of buns, different types of sauerkraut. And he went as far to carry, into, like if a fan wanted him to carry his mustard for him, he would do that. The last few years have gone on. You go to the grocery store and you find a new bottle of different type of fancy mustard. You'd be like, "All right, we're we're taking this now too." <laughs> By the end, we had like you know ten bottles of mustard in the in the tray walking around. It was heavy. And he would also like buy what he thought were better condiments from the supermarket with his <laughs> own money, not expensing anything to the A's to the vending company. 
yeah, and he was lugging all that around in his uh, in his steamer. So wow. I can't think of a better example of someone that's <laughs> dedicated to their craft than going out to the supermarket in your limited free time after you spend a day lugging around 30 or 40 pounds of condiments and then adding more to the load that you're carrying. <laughs> yeah. So let's continue on that track, Alex, uh, how every little detail mattered to him. I, I think that speaks to why fans loved him so much, right? Because he wasn't just a guy selling dogs. He was truly connecting with people. What were the two things that Jimmy wanted to know about every person that he sold to? Well, he always wanted to know their name. He was able to remember everyone's name. You know, and he always wanted to know what your favorite brand of mustard was, what condiments you liked. You know, he didn't want to make it transactional. And I don't think he saw it as transactional. I, from doing, I probably interviewed 10 or 12 fans for the story and talking to Hal, who's worked at other ballparks across the country. Just the general consensus is that this is how he genuinely felt. He didn't really see it as a transaction. It was, you know, he referred to fans as his friends genuinely wanted to know who they were and what they liked and how he could make their experience better, how he could make their day better. There are people, you know, in Chicago and Washington and Baltimore, places I've vended, are beer vendors out there, you know, who build long relationships with regulars. And people know their names and they'll say, oh, I only buy from this guy or that guy. But I've never heard of anyone going out and buying their own uniform or building their own machine, building their own thing so that they could bring more condiments out to the field. I guess in our era where you just hand someone a card and you ask them to swipe it or you hand someone a couple bills and you grab a hot dog and you barely say a word, there was just like a lot of warmth in what he did. I think he mentioned this probably two or three times in the 30-minute conversation that we had. Hal had a very different technique. He would, you know, stand in front of a section and try to get everyone to chant hot dogs with him and chant like go A's with him and he was trying to like, rally everyone up and he would sell more hot dogs that way but Jimmy would always come back with more tips he said Jimmy always had a hundred more dollars in tips at least <laughs> because you know it's one by one even from people that aren't A's fans I heard from people who had only been to the Coliseum once and then like just by chance Jimmy served them a hot dog and they remembered him so I feel like that's even more of an, an indication of the impact that he had. And his friendship with Hal extended well outside of the ballparks here in the Bay as well. What was Halloween like with Jimmy and Hal? <laughs> Halloween was something else. They would camp out on 21st Street in San Francisco, which is where Jimmy grew up. And when Hal was looking for a new apartment, where Hal eventually moved into because Jimmy found him an apartment right next to <laughs> his apartment. Wow. <laughs> So to say they were joined to the hip, it's not an exaggeration, but but every Halloween they wanted to do something different, and Jimmy used to spend cotton candy, so he had a cotton candy machine, and he would spin cotton candy for all the trick-or-treaters, and, you know, word spread pretty quickly. So before long, according to Hal's estimation, they would have hundreds of kids kind of flocking to Jimmy's apartment while he's out there in his red and white vest, same uniform he's wearing at the Coliseum, spinning cotton candy for everyone. You get hundreds and hundreds of kids, because... You know, one kid would be walking around the neighborhood with their bag of candy in one hand and a giant cone of cotton candy in the other, and everyone would be like, what street is that on? That's the kind of that's the kind of stuff he'd do. Just because he wanted to give back, just because he wanted to do something nice. So yeah, Halloween was um, that was kind of their Halloween tradition for the past couple of years. I love that, and you got into a, 
a little bit of it earlier, but I know that the Graff family held a visitation for Jimmy just before the new year. What were some of the most impactful stories that you heard from that gathering? I guess one story that stood out to me was a Giants fan stood up to the podium and talked about how, you know, like everyone else, he talked about how Jimmy always remembered his order. But he mentioned a story where Jimmy was selling ice cream one day, and this fan asked him why, and the reason was that he didn't think that the quality of hot dogs were up to his standard that day, and he didn't feel comfortable selling them. It just says a lot about what his standards were, how he viewed his job, what he felt comfortable serving the fans. So, so that story stuck with me, too. Like I mentioned in the story, you remember birthdays, anniversaries. You know, there was an old couple that he knew, and it was like their anniversary or something. And they were like up in the upper deck, which is not a place Jimmy would ever go. And he, you know, he knew all the camera guys, too, the TV and the, and the Jumbotron camera guys. And he said, you know, he told, he found the camera guys before the game. And he said, you know, it's their, you know, it's like their 50th anniversary. I'm going to go up and, you know, give them a free hot dog in the fifth inning. Make sure to train the, the Jumbotron camera or whatever on them in the fifth inning. I'll be up there. I talked to his sister, Mardo, after the piece ran, a couple days after the piece ran. And she said a couple times, she was like, you know, he was a lot more than just a vendor. You know, he always saw himself as a lot more than just a vendor. And I I truly believe that. I mean, you know, I, I really do think that he didn't view profits strictly in the monetary sense. I think he also incorporated the relationships that he was building with people and the friendships he was building with people and, you know, his ability to make someone's day or make someone's experience at the ballpark or their first day at the ballpark. You know, that stuff really filled him with joy and fulfillment. <laughs> well, that definitely comes through in the piece. So Alex, before we let you go, I know from my experience that stories like this can stick with us sometimes, even when we're on the other side of things, just reporting the stories. So just wondering what's going to stay with you from the way that Jimmy the Hot Dog Guy lived his life? Oh, man. Um, it's always going to be an uphill battle when you're writing a remembrance story on someone that you've never met. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's Sometimes you're writing it and you're reporting it and you're thinking, am I the right person for this job? Am I, should I be writing this right now if I've never even met this guy? You know, I was shocked. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever reported a story where I felt like I know the person so quickly just based on interviews with friends, with A's officials, with, you know, I talked to Dave Cavill briefly for this story and he kind of reiterated what everyone else had to say about Jimmy. It just felt like, across the board, no matter who you were, everyone had the same experience with him, like remarkably consistent. And that was just someone that took a lot of pride in his job, took pride in doing things the right way, was not very transactional in how he did things, always wanted to make it personal for every fan, always approached his job with a degree of warmth that we just don't really see in this day and age. And to me, that's just kind of a rarity. I mean, you know, I think that's probably what's going to stick with me is how how many lives he impacted, and even just in passing, people that had only been to the Coliseum once or Coliseum twice for an A's game remembered this guy, and and that doesn't happen unless, you know, you're doing something different. So I think that's probably what's going to stick with me. Well, Alex, it was absolutely wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for helping to share Jimmy's story. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. One other note we wanted to share about Jimmy before we go. A lot of food and drink vendors eventually transition from lugging a giant steamer over their shoulders to selling souvenirs, as the higher commissions make all that time on your feet worthwhile. 
Well, Hal asked Jimmy about that one day, and Jimmy's answer resonated with all of us. Sure, they might make more money, but there's no regulars when it comes to souvenirs. So his connection with the fans, or his friends, as Jimmy called them, would have ended. In other words, he might have made a few more bucks, but it really all depends on how you define profit. For Alex's feature on the dearly missed Jimmy the Hot Dog Guy, just click the link in the description notes of today's podcast. Coming up in the next few weeks here on The Update. We'll get into the growing number of girls competing for the Junior Sharks down in San Jose. We'll catch up with Niners Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel Hannah Gordon to discuss all the winning the organization is doing off the field this season. And on our next show, Niners beat writer David Lombardi swings by to discuss the path that prepared Jimmy G for greatness, why Richard Sherman's return to vintage Sherm form, and what the Niners need to do to get past the pack and punch their ticket to Super Bowl 54. That's your update for today. For all of us here at The Update, I'm Kate Scott. Thanks so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. We'll talk to you again on Friday.